But let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. And Lord, we pray tonight that as we read your Bible, as we open up the living, breathing Word of God, that it would minister to each heart that's here tonight. And Lord, that, that Father God, it wouldn't be a message that would just be pleasing to the ears of man, but Father God, it would be a message that would pierce to our heart, to, our, to the depths of our soul, and Father God would conform us again more to your image. So Lord, we give this night to you and for your glory, and we know, Lord, again, that, that without you we can do nothing. So I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be our teacher tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Now last week, we looked at the last, uh, from verse 42 to verse 50 of chapter 9 in Mark, and that's a pretty heavy-duty text. And basically what, to summarize it, it basically says that if your right eye offends, you pluck it out. Some of you have probably heard that term before, that, and it comes from the Bible. And it says, you know, if your hand offends you, then cut off your foot offends you. You know, if there's anything in you that is offensive to the kingdom of God, then eliminate it. And he's not talking about us maiming our bodies, because if he were, none of us could see, and none of us would, we'd all be hopping around because we wouldn't have any feet left, because we've all sinned. But what he's saying is, when we sin, and when we fall away from God, we're to do whatever is necessary, whatever step needs to be taken to be restored to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? So if there's something in your life that you're struggling with, do whatever measures are necessary to remove that from you. Be accountable to others. If you're struggling with pornography on the internet, get rid of your computer. Amen? If you're struggling with sitting and watching eight hours of TV when you should be spending time with the Lord, then maybe it's time to turn the cable off, right? If you're struggling with a, a, a relationship and you're flirting with somebody at work, get transferred or quit your job. I know those all sound radical, but you know what? It's not radical to be radical for God. Amen? It's whatever we need to do to make my relationship right with Him. And then in chapter 10 last week, we looked at marriage and divorce. And you know, the scary part is I talked about this last week. 55% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. And I've heard people say things like, well, that stat is just as high in the church as it is in the world. And, and you know, if you call the, you know, what the world wants to call the church, that may be true. But I would guarantee, I know for a fact, that that statistic is nowhere near that number for those who are truly walking, sold out, and fired up for Jesus Christ. Amen? If you're truly walking with God, your marriage will be strong. And, that's the, you know, and, the, and the enemy attacks the marriage before he even attacks the church because if he can destroy marriages, he can destroy the church. I talked about four characteristics of marriage last week. First of all, it's divinely appointed union. You know, marriage is not what man says marriage is. Marriage is what God says marriage is. You know, marriage is created by God. It was divinely appointed by God. And, you know, the people are going to court today to try to change the definition of marriage. But let me just tell you right now, if they, the, the world can define it any way they want to, but it's not marriage unless it's defined by God. Marriage is, is one man married to one woman, committed to each other forever. Amen? Till death do us part. And anything other than that has not been appointed by God. Not two women, not two men, not a group marriage, not multiple... None of that has ever been ordained by God. And no matter how many people vote on it, or how many churches say it's okay, man's opinion is irrelevant. What does the Bible say? Amen? And God's Word is very clear. If you're married, give your marriage to the Lord. Place Him at the center. Each man in here, you're called to be the priest in your household. Begin to minister to your wife, to serve her, to love her, to lay down your life for her. To love her as Christ loved the church. And if you're single, you wait and let God bring the person that He has for you. As I mentioned last week, Adam did not go hunting for his wife. Amen? God didn't hand him a bow and arrow and say, go find a woman. 
That's not what happened. God caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam, and he took a rib so that she would be near and dear to his heart, and he created woman and brought the woman to him. It's a physical union. The two become one flesh. And again, it is a permanent union. And it is a union that, again, is ordained by God. And that's, you know what? And if you have a marriage like that, you'll have a marriage that God will use mightily. But if you try to make your marriage work in and of yourself, you're going to have problems. So God ordained marriage. You know what? We, a lot of times people invite God to the wedding. Let's invite Him to the marriage. Amen? You know, people want God to be at the wedding. Well, let's let God be in the center of our marriages. So tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 13. And it's not by chance that right after Jesus Christ, who was the one speaking here, speaks of marriage and divorce, He's now going to speak about children. And the reason for that is painfully obvious. That in the world today, divorce and, and, the, and the struggle in the marriage, the biggest downfall to that is what happens to the children. And the Lord's going to make it real clear about His heart for children. So let's pick up in verse 13 and see what happens. It says, Then they brought little children to Him, then he, that He might touch them. Now what's awesome to me, it says, They brought little children to Him. Now, little children there, when you look at the original language, it means infants and toddlers. These were very small babies. And you know what? It's ba- this, I believe, is where we get what we use in the church today of baby dedication. Where when we have a small and a new child that we come before God and, and we, we come before the whole church and we say, we want to dedicate this child's life to the Lord from this point forward. Lord, we give this child to you. It's been yours since the beginning. Lord, you just get, gave, made me a caretaker. And Lord, we give this child's life to you. And we ask that you would bless it and you would touch their life. And so these, it says they, and the they there is masculine, which basically points to the fact that there were dads bringing their kids to the Lord. And you know what, dads? There's nothing better you can do for your kids than bring them to Jesus. Amen? You know what? We want to be great dads. We want to provide for our families. You know, I, I love going out in the backyard and teaching my son how to throw a ball or how to hit a baseball or, you know, helping him with his arithmetic and doing all the things that dads do. But the greatest thing I can do as a dad is take my children to Jesus. Amen? To be a Christ-like example to them and to bring them to the Lord and say, Lord, would you touch them? And that's exactly what's happening is here. They come and they're bringing their children to Jesus. Now, you've got to realize at this time, the Lord's being pressed in upon by a crowd. The Lord is very tired and weary. And here His apostles think they're doing the Lord a break. And look how they respond. It says that they might touch Him. They bring these infants and that He would put His hands on them and pray. It says in Matthew 19. They brought them saying, Lord, would you put your hands on them and pray for them? Would you touch them? But look what the disciples do. And the disciples rebuke those who brought them. So people are bringing their children to the Lord to be touched by God, and the apostles that are going, no, you don't understand, he's tired, you need to go home. You just need to leave the Lord alone. You need to back up. God doesn't have time. You know, the Lord doesn't have time right now for your kids. Now, we're going to see in the Lord's response that the Lord never is too weary to minister to us. Amen? He's never too tired, he's never too weary, he's never too busy. You know, people say that, well, God's got better things to deal with. God has nothing in the world to him that is more important than you. Did you know that? There's nothing. What's going on in Israel is not more important to God than you. Did you know? Because He loves you. And He's a perfect and an awesome God. And it says here, they brought them in that He might touch them, that that He might lay hands upon them and pray for them. And these dads are bringing their kids to the Lord, saying, Lord, would you touch them? Would you you just take them in your arms? And so the, the disciples respond by rebuking them. Now I want to say this. It's interesting to me that the dads bringing the kids to the Lord and saying, Lord, would you touch them? You know, a lot of times we need to be careful as parents that we, we need to lay hands on our kids both in discipline and in blessing. 
Amen? You know, a lot of times we can be all about discipline and not about blessing. Or all about blessing and not about discipline. And I believe as parents that God's Word very clearly says we need to discipline our children in the way that they should go. We need to raise them up to love God. The Bible says a man who does not discipline his child hates him. So we need to discipline our child, but always do it in love. But we also need to lay hands of blessing upon our kids. May our kids not be afraid of us. That, you know, the hand's going to be always in discipline, but that it may also be in love. You know, I've shared this with you guys before. Something that God put on my heart since my wife was about three months pregnant with my daughter Ashley is every night when we were laying in bed, I would lay hands on my wife's stomach and I would pray for my daughter that she would love God. And I would, dedicate her, I would dedicate her to the Lord and lay hands every single night. And you know what? Even after she was born, I would go into her room every single night, anytime I'm home, and lay hands on her. Most of the time after my kids were asleep. I'm a late guy. I, I go to bed really late, usually around midnight. And I'd go into the room every night. And, and, to, and you know what? Anytime I'm home to this day, I go into every one of my kids' rooms, and I, and I kneel by their bed, and I pray for them. You know why? Because they're precious. And I want them so desperately to serve God. You know, the Bible says, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. Amen? The greatest joys of my life has been baptizing my kids, praying with my kids to come to know God, hearing, you know, my daughter at Baymont, you know, she, got, she has a 4.0 and all that kind of stuff, and I'm going to be a dad for a second, so I'm going to brag for a second. But you know what? She's got a 4.0 and she get good, gets good grades, but you know what blessed me more than anything? Is they give out a thing called the Bible Award to the kid in the school that most best exemplifies their love and a godly character and a love for Almighty God. And when my daughter got that, I was done. You know what? You can, you can have all the 4.0s you want. Give me a child that loves God. Amen? And so these people brought their kids to Jesus and said, would you just touch my child? And you know what? We need to be that way. Let's take our kids to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray for our kids without ceasing. Let's be fervent. And you know what? Sometimes we have to, to discipline them so that they won't fall away from God. But the disciples rebuked those that came. And the disciples acted as if they knew what was best. As if they knew what the Lord would want to do. They said, you know, the Lord has no time for you. Go away. And you know, that's a mistake that we can make today. We can make the mistake of prejudging people and say, well, that person will never get saved. You know, God will never have time for that person. How many of you have ever been guilty of that? Right? That person, you know, you almost have like, well, those people are definitely saved. These are people that, man, they're pretty close to knowing God and those people forget about it. And you know what? The disciples acted that way to say, you know what? We know what's best for the Lord. You know, we're His buds. We've been walking with Him. He doesn't have time for you right now. Why don't you just go on home? Why don't you guys just leave? You know what? Let's not make decisions for God. They did, now, let me ask you a question. Do we see the apostles turn around saying, Lord, what would you have us to do with these people who are coming? Is that what they did? They didn't seek godly counsel. They made decisions for God. They also, contrary to what he previously taught them, because he said in Mark chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives, receives me not, but him who sent me. The Lord told him, when you receive a child, you're receiving me, and then here come some children, not very much longer, and they're telling them to get lost. Lord, may we never be that way. May any person that walks in these doors know that they're loved and they're welcome. Amen? Always. And that was the Lord's heart. And look at how the Lord responded. But when Jesus saw it, He was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to Me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. He was greatly dis displeased. It implies a deep feeling of pain. The Lord was in pain when children were, re were kept away from Him. It broke His heart. You know what? That hasn't changed. The Lord's heart still breaks for a generation that's lost and separated from God. Most of you know that I spent a long time uh, 
a decade and a half as a youth pastor. And I have a burden for kids, and that will never go away. And you know what? As God, in God's perfect timing, I want us to have the most rocking youth group you've ever seen. Why? Because I want kids on fire for Jesus. And then, you know what? Let's get that foundation before they go off to college and they start being told you know, that their great-great-grandfather was a gorilla or something, right? Or that, you know, that philosophy or lightning hit a puddle and then there's this thing. None of that happened. It's a bunch of garbage. And we need to teach our kids the truth. And you know what? The, the Lord was displeased. There was a pain in His heart that people were keeping children away from Him. And you know what? We need to have that same heart today. Our heart, needs, our heart needs to break. And Jesus was never too tired. He was never too weary. He was never too busy for anyone who came to Him with a sincere heart. He says, let the little children come to Me and do not forbid them. Jesus rebuked the disciples. They were not the ones who determined who Jesus wanted to touch, who would be saved. And may we never fall into that trap. Jesus died for all of mankind. Amen? He died for the rapist. He died for the murderer. He died for the terrorist. He died for the adulterers. He died for the homosexuals. He died for the proud. He died for the self-righteous. He died for everybody in this room. And you know what? Had He not died, we'd be hopeless. But He died for all of us. And He loves every one of us. And may we never make the cross less than it really is. May we never limit what the cross can do. May we never limit what Jesus Christ did for us. May we never say that that person's beyond salvation. You can take a million steps away from God, but it's only one step back. Amen? And the Lord is waiting and desiring that everybody would come to a saving knowledge of Him. He says, of such is the kingdom of God. Of such, these children are a picture of the kingdom of God. And you know why they're a picture? Not because children are the only ones that get saved, but you know what you see in children? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Children are fully reliant upon their parents. Fully. You know, when my kids were born, they didn't bring anything into my family that helped out. They, all they did was take, right? And I was happy to give, amen? But my kids didn't, like, bring a portfolio with them of money. They, you know, they didn't show up with, you know, like, oh, I can, you know, I can work on a, the cabinet degree. I, you know, I've got, I've got these skills. They came in crying, wanting to be fed, wanting to be changed, right? Amen? And if I didn't feed my children, guess what happened to them? They'd die. Isn't that true? What if I didn't clothe them? What if I didn't protect them? What if I didn't watch out for them? What if I didn't care for them? And you know what? When we come to Jesus Christ, we need to come not claiming to know or have anything. Saying, Lord, I'm fully reliant upon you. You know what? Children, the parents give birth to them. They feed them. They clothe them. They protect them. They give them shelter. They impart wisdom to them. And it's a one-way relationship initially. But eventually the child responds by returning love, walking in faith and in obedience. You know what? When my kids, one of my favorite words in the whole world, and I, don't, I hope my kids call me this till they're 50, if the Lord tarries. One of my favorite words is daddy. I love that word. I love when my kids say daddy, I'm done. You know, when my daughter, you know, my oldest, when she got to the point where she'd say daddy, I love you. I get, what do you want, the house, car, what do you want? You can have anything you want. Why? Because I just melted. I was done because I loved her so unconditionally. And you know what? I was raising her up, but there was a time when she started to hear my voice and recognize my voice when I walked in the room. And then she'd smile. And then she'd hold her arms up to be held. And finally she said, Daddy. And I was through. Well, you know what? So too was our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because through His death, we are given birth. Amen? We are born again. Through Him, we are clothed. In His righteousness, the Bible says. We feed upon His Word. We are directed, comforted, and imparted wisdom through His Holy Spirit. We are sheltered and protected in His promises to provide and watch over us. And all He wants us to do is respond and say, Daddy, I love you. Amen? And do you know that the Lord loves that 
more than even what I love when my daughter does that to me. Do you know that's what worship's about? Is we're crying out and saying, Daddy, I love you. You're such an awesome God. I'm so blessed to be your son, your daughter. Thank you, Lord. That's what He desires. The Bible says that we are His treasured possession more than anything else. It's, it's the way that we respond to Him. Verse 15. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. If we come to God in self-sufficiency, in pride, on our own terms, we will by no means enter the kingdom of God. We can't show up and think we're doing God a favor. You ever hear people, you know, coming to God saying, you know, Lord, oh, you know, you know you're going to be so blessed. And I've heard Christians say this. Man, God would, could do such an awesome work if that person would get saved. Right? Man, if Bill Gates would get saved, just imagine what he could do with all that money. Does God need Bill Gates' money? Amen? Well, if that pro ball player would get saved, just think what a testimony they could have. You know, if that musician would get saved, just think how awesome it would be. You know what? God, and you know what, let me say this too. When people come forward to accept Christ and they're, and they're jumping up and down, or it's this real emotional, happy, joyous thing, I'm concerned. Because true salvation comes from repentance. And we need to be broken. Amen? We need to realize that in me there is no good thing. That I'm fully reliant upon God. Lord, I need you so desperately. Without you, I can do nothing. Lord, I need you. That's, the, that's true repentance. Not coming to God, I'm going to try this God thing for a while. I've had people say that to me. Well, I came forward because I want to try this God thing for a while. Well, you don't get it. It isn't about trying this God thing for a while. Amen? You know, I tried, I tried drugs, I tried relationships, I tried career. Let me try this God thing for a while. That's not repentance. Repentance is, Lord, I need you. I'm desperate, Father God. Just cry out, Lord, will you please save me? I'm not worthy. That's repentance. And the Lord says we need to come like a child, fully reliant upon Him, focused only on Him. Not that we're bringing anything that He needs, but Lord, we're crying out to Him and He's blessing us. Verse 16, and I love this. And He took them in His arms, laid His hands on them, and blessed them. Wouldn't you love... Man, wouldn't you love... If there was a line... First of all, before my kids got in, I, could you do me first? Amen? Lord, would you put your arms around me and bless me first? Amen? And you know, that's where I want to be. I Man, can I just sit on your... Can I, you know, be like, be like John, who laid his head on Jesus' chest when they were eating. So, Lord, I just want to be as close to you as I can be. That's where I want to be. And you know, I cry out like that, but wouldn't it just bless you for Jesus to take your kids in his arms and just pray over them and bless them? Do you know that that's what he does? Do you know that he loves them? Do you know he's interceding on their behalf? That's our Lord. That's our Savior. That's our God. That's who we serve. He's so awesome. We're so blessed. And so he says, first and foremost, that he talks about children, that we need to have childlike faith, that we as parents need to bring our children unto the Lord and ask for His blessing and His hand upon their lives. Now he moves from there, from talking about children, and now we're going to look at the story that many of you have heard of before, the stories of, a, of the rich, young ruler. Now this, par- this story that Jesus tells this occurrence is talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I've combined all three texts to give you the fullest amount of details about this young man who comes to the Lord. And he comes to him, we're going to see initially, it's going to look like he has the right heart. So we move from an explanation of childlike faith to an example of a man who outwardly appears righteous, but has placed his faith in his own wealth and self-sufficiency. He's placed his faith in something other than Jesus Christ. Even though from the outward appearance, he appears to be a very righteous man. And again, he's rich, he's young, he's healthy, he's a ruler. Most likely, he's a ruler in the synagogue. 
So this is a religious man, not unlike Nicodemus. From the world's point of view, he had everything you could possibly want, but the Lord's going to have some instruction for him. Because you know what? If you have, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The Bible says. The most valuable thing we have is the thing that's going to outlast this life. Verse 17. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that my, I may inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to see a few things here because this guy starts off pretty well. He comes and it says he came running. There was a sense of urgency. You know, I will never forget, in 1991, I went to Russia. I've had the opportunity to go to Russia, and I always forget, six or seven times, to help plant churches, all, Calvary chapels all over Russia. Been to Siberia and Moscow and other places. And I'll never forbid, forget being in Russia when Billy Graham was there. This is right after the wall came down. They had signs everywhere, and they had a picture of Billy Graham, and, it, and, and I had to ask the interpreter, what, is the, what does it say? And the billboards all just said, a man talks to people about God. Now remember in Russia, for 70 years, they've been told there is no God. You know, I was told by a teacher that they were instructed to begin their classes every morning. Good morning, class, there is no God. That's how class started every single day. But I'll never forget that they said nobody would show up for the Billy Graham crusade. Nobody will be there. It's going to be a joke. They're having in the Olympic Stadium from the 1980 Olympics where we boycotted and didn't show up. And you know what? That stadium's never been full since the Olympics, and nobody's going to show up for that thing. And that night we went, and there were over 100,000 people inside, and there were another two or 300,000 people outside standing in the snow listening on speakers. They shut all the doors and wouldn't let people out. I felt bad. I was with a couple of my buddies, and we were saying, can we go out and let three people in? We already know the Lord. Why don't we go stand out in the snow? We don't need to be in here. And you know what? They said, if we open the doors, they'll run us over. And as the people were pressing their face against the window, one of the guards said something really profound that I heard through the interpreter. He said, those people know there's hope in here. And I said, amen. And you know, why do I tell this whole illustration? I'm telling you for this. When they had the altar call at the Billy Graham crusade, people didn't walk. They ran. I mean, it was a full-bore sprint from the back of that place, running up to give their life to Jesus Christ. There was a sense of urgency. And I just stood there, and I was overcome. I was weeping. My interpreter was weeping, saying, you know, all these years we've been praying, and now look at what God's doing. This man came with a sense of urgency to Jesus. He came running. And this was not an eloquent thing for a religious leader to do. But he came running. He wasn't worried about appearance. He came running. Then it says, after he came running, he knelt before him. This is a sign of humility. He knelt before the Lord, and he knelt before him, and he looked up at him. That's a sign of being humble before God. Again, he's a ruler. Rulers don't do those kinds of things. And then he said to him something that we'll see in a moment is odd. He said, good teacher applies to Jesus a title that even the rabbis would not allow to be associated with their name. Because they said that they weren't good. We can't, we can't use that name. That's a name that can only be used for God. And yet here this religious man came running to Jesus. He knelt before him in humility. And he said, good teacher. This looks like a man who's sincere. Amen? And you know what? A lot of people do come to the Lord in sincerity. But they're not willing to truly repent. They come in sincerity looking for an answer. But when the answer is given to them, it's not the answer that they want. So they try to change who God is. They make Him a God of prosperity. We see that in a lot of churches today. Amen? 
They make Him a God of, you know, it's all good. There are a lot of churches, even in this town, where it's all about, you know, hey, it's okay. You know, it's all good. Seven keys to happiness. How to truly have joy in your life. No, it's about repentance. It's about being born again. It's about seeing my need for a Savior. And this man came and he knelt before the Lord and he looked up at him and he called him good teacher. But look what he says, and this is where he makes his mistake. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. What shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. He had it all wrong. You know what? This man was caught up in legalism. He was caught up in keeping the rules and the rituals. He said, what thing am I missing? What shall I do? What other thing do I need to do that I will inherit eternal life? What shall I do? Making the mistake that he thinks that it's something that he does that will help him inherit eternal life. Let me tell you, it's not what we do, but what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. Amen? We don't come to Him clothed in righteousness. We come to Him clothed in filthy rags, the Bible says. In a, to- in a desperate and total need for Him as our Savior. What shall I do? Again, the legalism. And you know what? He comes to Jesus. And I want to say this. Jesus doesn't only have the answer. Jesus is the answer. Amen? He comes looking for the answer and doesn't realize He's talking to the answer. He's saying, Lord, tell me what the answer is. There it is. He's the answer. Verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know, the cultists have taken this verse and messed it all up. So they'll say things like, See, Jesus is saying right here that He's not God. That's exactly the opposite of what He's saying. He says to him, let me read it again. Why do you call me good? No one is good except one that is God. Since God alone is good... Jesus is asking him, are you saying that I'm God? Because until we confess Jesus Christ is God, we will never be saved. Jesus Christ cannot be the most elevated guru and you be saved. Jesus Christ cannot be the brother of Satan like the Mormon church would say and you be saved. Jesus Christ cannot be Michael the archangel. He can't be one of many paths. He has to be God. He has to be Lord. He has to be Savior or He's nothing. Amen? He's Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And he's saying, Do you, are you saying that I'm God? He's giving this man an understanding of who he's talking to. You're talking to the creator of the universe. You call me good teacher. There's only one that's good. Do you know that I'm God? Do you understand? Then he says to him this, and this is what else will prove to him is need for Jesus Christ. Look what he says, verse 19. You know the commandments. Again, he's a religious ruler. Of course he knows the commandments. And Jesus quotes to him from Exodus 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So the law commandments are a standard that man strives for in an attempt to find favor with God. That's what the Jews were doing in those days. But that's not why God gave us the commandments. Do you know that? The Bible says that the law is a taskmaster that drives us to the cross. I've shared it with you before. I'll share it with you again. The law is like a mirror. When you take the law and you put it up in front of yourself, you realize that you are imperfect. You know, one of the things I love to do on planes, I pray for the person I'm going to sit next to, especially when I'm going to Russia, because i got 17 hours. You talk about a captive audience, we can, we can go over a, a good chunk of the Bible in 17 hours, amen? 
And so I just pray for the person sitting next to me, divine appointment. I'll never forget one lady getting on there and telling me, well, yeah, well, you know, my, my son's a pastor of a church, and, and uh, he believes in evolution and the Bible. They can coexist, and, you know, just a bunch of nonsense. And I'm listening to this. I'm saying, really? And she said, yeah, you know, I don't really think I need God. I mean, if, if there really is a God, I'm good enough, and it's okay. And I said, you know, can I make you a challenge? And I opened up my wallet, and I had a bunch of money because I'm going to Russia. I'm going to be gone for a long time. I took $500 out, and I set it down on the tray in front of her. I said... I'll make you a challenge. I'll go through the Ten Commandments with you. And if there's any one of those cam- commandments you have not broken, I'll give you that money. You want to do it? She said, oh, yeah, let's do it. So you're done. I know the Ten Commandments. So I said, well, the Bible says thou shalt have no other God before me. You just told me right now that you're not so sure you even need God, that you're pretty good, and if there is God. So obviously you've put things in your life before God. Oh, yeah, I've done. Okay, thou shalt have no graven image, the Bible says. That means you should serve nothing uh, put nothing, you know, do you, is your house more important than your relationship with God? I think you've already told me. Well, yeah, that's probably true. Third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever used Jesus' name in any way other than praying or seeking after him? No, yeah, I've done that, okay. She's just waiting for that, thou shalt not murder. I know she is. But, so we get to the fourth commandment. Fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I said, do you always give God the first fruit of your time? Do you make sure that you give him the best of your time? Do you seek out? No, I probably haven't done that. I said, the Bible says, the fifth commandment is, honor your mother and your father. I said, did you always listen to your parents growing up? Did everything? No, I haven't done that. Sixth commandment is, thou shalt not kill. Ah, there's my money. I've never killed nobody. Well, the Bible also says, if you've had hatred in your heart, that you've committed murder. Now, have you ever in your life, ever once, said, I hate that guy? Oh, I'll put some money back. I said, okay. <laughs> Seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I've never done that. E- Wait a minute. The Bible also says that if you've lusted in your heart or looked on somebody with a lustful eye, you've committed adultery. Put the money back down again. I said, the Bible, you know, I said, then it says, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. He said, have you ever stole anything? Paper clip, anything from work? Oh, I've done it. Thou shalt not lie. You ever told lie before? Oh, yeah, I've told lies before. I said, okay. And then I said, and that also proves that I couldn't have believed you if you told me you didn't break any of the other eight commandments because you're a liar anyway. And then I said, the last commandment is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions. I said, have you ever looked at anything anybody else possessed and said, man, I wish that was mine? She said, yeah, I've done. I said, you know what? She goes, what? I go, you're a sinner. She goes, yeah, I'm a sinner. I said, amen, and so am I. And the point is, without our seeing that we are sinners, we will see no need for a Savior. Amen? And this man came, saying, the Lord takes him and says, here's the mirror. Let me put it right up in front of you. Here it is. You need to keep all these commandments. Have you done it? Look at the man's response, verse 20. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. You know what? Notice that the Lord only gives him the commandments, the six commandments. I don't know if you know this. There's six commandments that deal with our relationship with others. And there's four commandments that deal with our relationship with God. Okay? And the Lord speaks to him the six commandments that deal in his relationship with other people. And he says, you know what? I've always been a good guy. You know what? Without conviction, there can be no conversion. This man is not convicted about his sin yet. And that's why we need to take people to a point and bring them to a place of realizing that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Until that happens, they'll never cry out to Almighty God. And he says, I've done it from my youth. Now look at this response. But I want to say this. He also said in Matthew's gospel in this text he said what do i still lack you know lord i've done everything you said is there something else that i need to do that i haven't done you know lord there's a there's a big hole in my life there's something else that's missing what is it that's a great question isn't it you know and you know what if you go up to anybody in the world today 
The reality is nobody has peace if they don't have Jesus Christ. They can, you know, that God-shaped vacuum. Man, I'll put, I'll put money in there. I'll put career in there. I'll put relationships in there. I'll put, I'll put women in there. I'll put men in there. I'll put whatever. I'll try other stuff. Fame, power. You know, I'll put all this other stuff. And you know what? The flesh will never be satisfied. And there's only one thing that can fill that hole, and it's Jesus Christ. And so this man comes and says, what am I lacking? What else is there? What else do I need? And that's a great question. James 2.10 says, for, for what, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. If you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. Look at the next verse, 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Don't you love that? This man's a sinner, right? Just like Dave. This man's a man who's self-righteous and thinking that he doesn't see a need for a Savior. And he says, but what do I still lack? And it says, the Lord loved him. So does Lord, the Lord love a sinful world? The answer is yes. Does he love those who curse his name? The Bible says, yes, he does. He loves them. He, you know, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we're such wonderful people, but because of his wonderful love for us. Jesus had compassion for the sincere truth seeker who was hopefully lost. We're almost done here. Jesus knew the young man's heart and he cut into the real issue of his life. Jesus knew that the real God in this young man's life was his possessions. And to truly follow Christ, we must put him first in our lives. When we invite our Lord to free us from our sin, we're inviting him to rule in our life. There's only room for one person on the throne of your life. It's either you or the Lord. You can't have, you're not, God is not going to share the throne of your life with you. Did you know that? So either you're on the throne or He's on the throne. So I ask you tonight, who's on the throne? Who's, whose will are you seeking, yours or His? When you wake up in the morning, who are you seeking to follow after? The desires of your flesh or to honor God? Because only one person can be on the throne. And the Lord seeing that says in verse 20, 21, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come take up the cross and follow me. Now I want you to understand something. Poverty does not produce automatic spirituality. Amen? You know, India is a impoverished nation. Are they godly? Never forget Chuck Smith picking up a George Bryson who now runs Calvary Chapel Outreach Fellowship and plants all the churches in Europe. And at the time, in the late 60s, George Bryson was a hippie guy, long hair, you know, and, and denied that there was a guy. And, he, and they get in the car, and he's driving along with them, and he, he says, well, so what do you do? And Pastor Chuck says, well, I'm a pastor, church in town. And he says, well, I'm a Hindu. I'm a Hindu. Now, now, Chuck didn't get into a long debate with him. He just looked at him and said, well, it seems to be working out for India. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's no bueno. I mean, India's in poverty. India's a mess. How's Hinduism working out for India? And the point is, poverty does not equate to spirituality. I mean, if you look in the Bible, many of the greatest men in the Bible were wealthy. Was David wealthy? How about Abraham? How about Solomon, the richest man who ever lived? What about Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea? All these men had great possessions. But you know what? Possessions in and of themselves are not inherently wrong. But when they dictate how you, dictate how you spend your time and make your decisions, you're in big trouble. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. It says the love of money. And only one thing can be on the throne of my life. It can't be money and God. And he looked at the man and says, you know what your problem is? You've got money on the throne. The most important thing to you is the stuff that you own. You know, and it's all chaff. It's all going to burn. It's wood, hay, and stubble. You don't get it. And he says to him, go sell the chaff and come back. 
Go get rid of the stuff that's perishing anyway and come and follow me. We cannot serve two masters. And the key word in this verse is follow me. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We must come to the point where we trust God enough to give him complete control of our lives. God's not looking for us. You know, we sing this song, I've shared it before. I surrender all. Amen? Don't we sing that song? Not I surrender some, but that's how we want to live sometimes. I surrender some, right? No. I surrender all. Give all to Jesus. Some to Jesus I surrender. That's not the song. And he says to this man, look, you need to surrender all. That's your God. Whatever's more important to you than Jesus Christ, we've got to get rid of it. Verse 22. But when he said the, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was bummed out because he had so much stuff. You know, sometimes us losing a job or us not making the kind of money we used to can be a blessing. Amen? Sometimes all these things that we're striving to attain, and I've told you guys this story before, but I made a lot of money at a very young age, and I bought the dream house, and I had the pool, and bought the car, went on vacation whenever I wanted, did all those things. And you know what I realized? Even as a Christian, that's empty. You know what? If I could go to Siberia and tell people about Jesus, or go to Hawaii for a month, send me to Siberia. You know why? Because that's eternal stuff. If there were an 11th commandment in the Bible, it would be, Thou shalt go on a short-term missions trip. Amen? I mean, because when you go, you realize, this is, what I got at home is not important. What's important is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. And this man went away sorrowful because his stuff was so important to him. Are you more happy when someone comes to know the Lord or when you get a raise? What makes you more happy? That'll tell you where your heart is. Are you more excited when you get to share your faith with the guy in the cubicle next to you or when you make a big sale? Or when you, what, what, what excites you? What do you get excited about? We should be way more excited about stuff that's not going to perish than the stuff that's going to fade away. Verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to make this clear. Jesus is using hyperbole here. And you know, there was a man, uh, some commentators a while back, that said that there was a gate in Israel called the, the Eye of the Needle, and Camel had to get down and take all the stuff off its back. No such gate doesn't exist. It's not there. He, said, he means a camel through the Eye of a Needle. That won't happen. All right? If it does, it'll be very messy. Right? That's no bueno. So he's saying it's easier for a camel to go through the Eye of a Needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what he's talking about is that rich, rich, rich people, most of them, quite often, they're rich because that's the pursuit of their life. But God, at the same time, will bless those with riches who He knows will be faithful with them. How much of your money belongs to the Lord? All of it. 10%, no? Now, you may tithe 10% if God leads you to. And, you know, and we should tithe because God's called us to. We're giving back to Him. It's just a sign of us telling the Lord, everything I have is yours. But we need to be faithful with the other 90%, even when we're tithing with the 10. Amen? Because it's all His. Lord, everything I have is Yours. To You be the glory. And I don't want Your money, by the way. I'm not asking for Your money. I don't want Your money. God doesn't need, you know, I don't need Your money. We don't need it. Amen? God, that's, God's got, my Father has a cattle on a thousand hills. He'll take care of it. I will never, ever, ever ask anybody in this room for 50 cents. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because where God guides, God provides. Let God be the one as a provider. Amen? And he says, but you know, a rich man, it'd be easy for a camel. So it's impossible for a rich man who trusts in his wealth to enter into heaven. You know what? You can't get before God on judgment day and write a check big enough to get into heaven. 
Amen? You know, Bill Gates is not going to be able to go, now let's see. Here we go. How, 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 how much is it? What's the entrance fee? I, I'll, I'll cut the check. The Lord doesn't care about our money. He doesn't need it. You know, do you know that in, in heaven gold is asphalt? Did you know that? Amen? Stuff that's important down here is nothing. However awesome we think heaven's going to be, it's going to be way more awesome than that. And so this great wealth brings a temporal feeling of independence and self-sufficiency. Why pray and seek God when I can just go write a check? You know, sometimes when we got a lot of wealth, we're, you know, a lot of times, even like we get out of debt, we say, man, I, now the Lord desires that we owe no man anything. But sometimes, man, we might get out of debt and we start resting in the fact that we don't have any debts anymore. We need to be fully reliant upon God whether we got $500 billion in the bank or we have nothing. And, that, and they're knocking on our door wanting to, wanting to take our furniture away. Our faith needs to be the same. Amen? That's what the Lord wants us to be. Finishing off. And they were greatly astonished saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Did you know back then that the rabbis taught that those who served God the most would be the ones with the most money? That's why the rabbis were all pretty wealthy. Do you know that? So this prosperity doctrine, nothing new under the sun. Amen? You know what, what's going on on, on, on TV? Send your $1,000 seed faith. That's noise. You know, how come they I want to call them up and say, why don't you send me $1,000 of seed faith money so God can bless you? You know, they're never calling, saying, the next 50 people are calling, we're going to send you 10 grand because we want to plant some seeds. They don't ever plant, they're always reaping. You ever notice that? That doctrine is fouled up. It's noise. Those same guys are, you know, trying to get social security checks out of old women so they can't even eat, and they're flying to their next crusade in their Learjet. Something's wrong. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Learn to lay down your life for others. The church should be the place where people come to be ministered to, not to be ripped off. Amen? That's what should be happening. And so it says here, the disciples were amazed and said, wait a minute, the prosperity doctrine. Jesus said, no, contrary to Jewish theology, riches can actually hinder you from getting into the kingdom of God. So verse 27, and he said, Jesus looked at them and said, with men is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. No man is beyond salvation. Even a rich man can be saved by the grace of God. An adulterous man, an alcoholic man, a murderer, a self-righteous man, God's grace is sufficient. Uh, worship team, why don't you guys come on back up as I read the last few verses here. The Peter began to say to them, See, we have left all and followed you. So Peter jumps up and says, See, we don't have any riches, Lord. We gave it all up. We came to follow you. And Jesus said, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in this age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. As Christians, we do not make sacrifices but investments in eternity. Amen? You know what? It's said of Jim Elliot. I love the quote. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? You know, you're giving up stuff that's all going to fade. It doesn't matter. And you know what? People talk about the rewards in heaven. Let me just tell you something. I'm th- if, if God rewards me in heaven, I'm going to be blown away, but that's not my motivation. Can I tell you that... Maybe it's yours, and I'm not saying it's wrong if it is yours. You know what my motivation is? My motivation is that I am blown away at how much Jesus Christ loves me. I am blown away that while I'm yet a sinner, He died for me. I'm blown away that He knows everything about me, and He still loves me. He that knows me best loves me most. That's motivation enough for me. 
And if God, if, when I get to heaven, wait a minute, you're telling me that you're going to save me from the pit of hell, you're going to love me, you're going to adopt me into your family, and then when I get to heaven, just because of all you've given me, you're going to give me more stuff? That blows my mind. But that's my God, amen? And I don't do it, my, my motives are not riches. My motives are not things that can perish. My motive is, the Bible says it's the love of Christ that compels us, amen? It's the love of Christ that Christ should compel us all. So Jesus wanted to make sure that men did not serve with the wrong motive and added the warning that those who were first in their own eyes would be last in the kingdom. Serve the Lord out of love for Him, not because you think you're going to get something. And even as you serve in the church, make sure you're not doing that service so other people will think you're wonderful. Don't even, even here, even as you serve, make sure your motives are, well, I want to be here so people will look at me and think I'm wonderful. Heaven forbid. May we never fall into that trap. May we, may we do everything we do to glorify and honor God. So in summary, as we get ready to sing, tonight we looked at children and the kingdom of God. Our number one job as parents is to bring children to the Lord, to raise them in the admonition of God, hands of blessing and hands of discipline. All who truly come to God must come with childlike faith, fully relying upon Him. Then we saw the rich young ruler, and may we not let riches, comfort, career, relationships keep us from seeing our need for a Savior. We are all sinners in need of Him. We must come to a place of denying ourselves, which means our fleshly desires. Taking up the cross, which means be identified with His suffering. Not be afraid to be identified with the suffering that He went through and following Him. Every aspect of life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would, in each one of us, Lord, just reveal to us if we are in any way like the rich young ruler. If we've put anything and made anything in our lives more important than you, Father, may just reveal that. Show us what we've lacked, that we might repent. That, Father God, that we may put you on the throne of our lives. Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you, that has not had that childlike faith, where they've come fully reliant upon you, just pierce their heart right now to see their need for you. But show them, Lord, that you love them. And the greatest thing they can do is just say, I love you too, Daddy. To cry out and say, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. Forgive me for my sin. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you continue to, to be, inhabit our praises even now as we just tell you how much we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand?